Whoa. Air blues. All right. Well, good morning, beloved. Great to see everyone here today. Looking good this morning. Looking good as always. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1. We are in 2 Peter chapter 1. If you're new with us, come at a great time. Last week we just began starting this brand new message series called Growing in Grace. We covered some of the overarching themes of 2 Peter as well as the introduction in verse 1. So really we're, we're just getting started. And uh, this morning what I'd like to do is finish going through this first section of Scripture. They'll take us down to verse 4. It's a part of a bigger section, the first 11 verses. I would um, categorize as one section, but verses 1 through 4 is our, our first sort of introduction to Second Peter. But let's begin this morning by... Uh, reading our text all the way through once, and then after we can seek how to apply it. So again, we are in um, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Here now are the words of the living and true God. It reads, Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. Amen. These are some incredible verses. Um, now, as we discovered uh, last week, this was the Apostle Peter's second letter written to the persecuted churches who are scattered throughout the provinces of Asia Minor. So we have the same group of people he's writing to and his purpose in writing to them just one year after his first letter was written was to warn them against the false teachers who had arisen within the churches. And although these false teachers at one time had given the appearance that they were followers of Christ, their lives demonstrated otherwise. In fact, their lives demonstrated that they denied him. These were men who essentially used the teaching and freedoms of God's grace as a justification to go on sinning, and even worse, were twisting the scriptures to do so. So not only were these churches experiencing persecution from outside the church but they were also experiencing persecution within with the rise of false teachers and their destructive heresies now throughout his letter peter is going to highlight three defenses that will protect them from falling prey to this deception defense number one know your salvation 
Defense number two, know your scriptures. Defense number three, know your sanctification. Those are the three things Peter wants us to know as we grow in God's grace. Protection number one, know your salvation. This is in verses 1 through 11. For example, we saw in verse 10 last week, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall away. Okay? So, protection number one, confirm that you're saved. Protection number two, know your scripture. And that runs from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to chapter 3, verse 2. As Peter will highlight just how important knowing your scripture is to defending yourself against false teachers. For example, in chapter 1 and verse 16, listen to what Peter says. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so Peter is saying what we, the apostles, taught you concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we weren't making up cleverly devised myths as these guys are. We were teaching the things that we were eyewitnesses to. We saw these things. We saw his majesty, his glory. The apostle John in 1 John 1, 1 said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, we testify to you. We were eyewitnesses of all of it. So this isn't second hand or third hand or fourth hand or, or some new revelation coming from a new guy. And you can imagine the challenges the apostles were up against. As soon as they've set up a church and set up some of the elders and walked out of there, these wolves in sheep's clothing were coming in right behind them. Oh, you can't listen to what Paul says. Paul's not an apostle. Who told you that? Him? You can't trust him. Oh, I walked with the Lord. This is what the Lord said. I mean, they don't even have the copy of the New Testament yet. And so you can imagine the real, very real challenges that the church was facing in this apostasy. And then um, down in, in verse 20, um, Peter goes on to say, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And that's what these guys were saying. Oh, yeah, I know that you've heard it been said here, but let me tell you what he meant. And the Gnostics were known for this, this higher secret knowledge. Peter says, know this first of all. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. If these guys are coming up with a different interpretation than what we told you, do not listen to them. Let them be accursed. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is how godly men were able to write down the words of God. This is a, another scripture that testifies. Men wrote it, but they were carried along, led by the Spirit of the living God. Incredible. Incredible and unique to this time. I'm not an apostle, 
I'm not going to come out with a, a new form of writing and say, here's some new knowledge that God gave me. <laughs> so these are the warnings. Warning lights go up. Protection number one, know your salvation. Protection number two, know your scripture. And then protection number three is know your sanctification. Know where you're at today in your faith that will not be where you will be tomorrow. Okay? Those who know that they're saved and know their scriptures also know that they will continue in God's grace in Christ. Peter actually closes out chapter 3, verse 18 of this letter by saying, but grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so those are the three lines of defense that Peter lays out against false teachers. Know your salvation, know your scripture, and know your sanctification. And you'll notice in each of these um, protections, it involves knowing something. Now, it's not so much your intellectual knowledge that will help you spot deceivers, but it's through a personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must know the truth in order to stand with the truth. So last week, we started looking at our salvation. Know your salvation. Uh, and number one, we were looking at the source of our salvation, the source. This is just by way of review, so I'll go through this quickly. Notice again what Peter writes in, in verse one. Simon Peter a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you notice these opening lines are filled with salvation-type language. We see terms like faith, righteousness, received, Savior. In verse two, 2, you have grace and peace, the knowledge of God. These are all terms of salvation as Peter's referring to our redemption in Christ. So what is the source of this salvation? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says, those who have received this, this like precious faith, that King James translates it, the same kind of faith as ours, received it by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we looked at that word received, which means to obtain by divine allotment. And so last week we covered all this. We looked at our sinful nature, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And so the source of our salvation is clearly God. This morning, let's turn to point number two and the substance of our salvation, the substance. Notice verse two. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, to best teach this verse, we need to first address what this word knowledge means because the entire interpretation hangs on this one word. If you were with us last week, I mentioned that this word for knowledge appears in one form or another 16 times in this one letter, in these three short chapters. Six of those times is in the intensive form Epigenosis, epi, gnosis is to know. Epigenosis is to intensify it. And it intensifies it to speak of a fuller 
more deeper, richer, intimate, complete knowledge than just to know about somebody. Okay? The Apostle Paul also loved using this word. And most of the time he used it in relation to the truth. For instance, in his um, pastoral um, epistles to um, Timothy and, and Titus, he uses it um, at least five times. And specifically, he uses it whenever he talks about someone having a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay? It's an authentic, um, genuine, intimate knowledge of Jesus as their Lord. And every time he uses it, he calls it the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth. The substance of our salvation, beloved, at least in this section, is the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth. And, and you should know that this word knowledge that the apostles are referring to, they're actually taking back. This was a, a word that the pagans used all the time. And so the Christians like to reclaim these words and say, no, this is what God means by this word. And knowledge was one of them. So when the apostles use this word, it, it's referring here to something that greatly differs from the knowledge that pagans would refer to when they talked about their spirituality. Their spirituality. The knowledge that they would refer to was this deep philosophical knowledge or the knowledge that could be gained through mystical experiences. They were all about experience. And it's much of the same that we see today in hyper-charismatic movements. They're mixing and forming New Age practices. It's all rooted in Eastern mysticism and the occult where we are all gods. And we just have to tap into that Christ-like consciousness. But this knowledge that Peter and Paul are talking about is der it's not derived from emotion or feelings. It's not from some um, pent-up experience but through the revealed truth of God, through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's found in a person. It's not some random knowledge. This is knowledge is found in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an objective truth. It is a rational truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Paul says, Romans 10, 17, for faith, again, comes by hearing, and hearing by the words of Christ. The Bible tells us our hearts are deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can even know them? And so subsequently, if you're always seeking to know God through some kind of experience, hear me, emotions will deceive you. Why? Because in our fallenness, the truth is not in us. It is outside of us. Man is a fool, the Bible says. And so we need a true, rich, authentic, saving knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth. Back to our verse 2. Peter goes further than that. Not only do we need a knowledge of the truth, the way Paul calls it, but here he says it's a knowledge of a person. The knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. The substance of our salvation is we know God through knowing Jesus as our Lord. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, 
and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I'm going to bet that Peter got this wonderful expression, the knowledge of God from his Old Testament teachings. For example, and we'll look at it first in the negative sense, and a little later in the sermon, when this word pops up again, we'll look at it in more of a positive sense. But for example, in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh is quoted as saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I do not know the Lord. In Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it speaks of a, a whole generation of people who did not know the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, it describes how um, the sons of Eli were corrupt because, quote, they did not know the Lord. And then you'll remember from our time, Pastor Rick going through Proverbs chapter 2, when it talks about if you seek the scriptures like treasures, verse 5 says, you will understand the fear of the Lord and will find the knowledge of God. So this is um, an Old Testament concept. Man's relation to God is not only described as knowing the truth about God, but it's knowing God through his truth, through his written, revealed truth. It's why at the end of 2 Peter, again, he writes, but grow in the grace and what? Knowledge. The knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, remember what this word knowledge means. It's not an intellectual knowledge. It's not a bunch of facts. It's an intimate knowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, the substance of our salvation isn't by some like mystical um, experience. It's through knowing God. It is the knowledge of the truth as revealed in the person of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, continuing our backwards trip through verse 2. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, Grace and peace be multiplied to you. If you abide in Christ, this is the reality of your salvation. Romans chapter 5, 1 through 2 tells us, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith, into this grace in which we now stand. In the sphere of grace, beloved, we have peace with God. Grace and peace are really two sides of the same coin. Wherever there is grace, there is peace. Grace is the word uh, charissa in the Greek. It means a free gift in unmerited favor. I like to say it this way. Grace is the free gift of unmerited favor for sinners, giving them complete and total forgiveness of their sins through Jesus Christ forever. I'll say it again. Grace is the free gift of unmerited favor for sinners, giving them complete and total forgiveness of their sins through Jesus Christ forever. Grace is God's favor 
to the undeserving. And then that word peace is the Greek word irene. And peace is the effect of God's grace. It's the effect of having grace with God. Because of God's grace, we can now have peace with God. And when Peter says grace and peace be multiplied to you, he's talking about these, these never-ending streams of God's grace and peace that are just continually washing over his children. This is the idea of John chapter 1. Grace upon grace. As you continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the living and abiding word of God's truth, having fellowship in the Spirit, God is multiplying His blessings of grace and peace upon you. So, beloved, we must understand our salvation. If we're going to stand against the false teaching like the stuff that is certainly going around today, you've got to know. You've got to know the source of your salvation is God, and the substance of your salvation is this rich, deep um, knowledge of the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, this leads us to uh, point number three. And the sufficiency of our salvation. The sufficiency. Notice verse 3. This is about to get real incredible. If your socks weren't uh, blown off yet, get ready. For his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Stop right there. As we look at these next couple of verses, they should really cause an unending joy when we consider the immensity of the sufficiency that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first word I want you to notice is that word power. His divine power. It's that Greek word dunamis. We get the word dynamite from it and it means exactly what it says it means power in fact great power so mark it god's divine power is the source of our sufficiency whatever sufficiency has been given to us is because of his divine power it's not because of my strength it's not because of anything i did not by natural power it's divine power Dunamis. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. What power is he referring to? The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. All right? Power that can do exceedingly, abundantly more than we ask or think or can even imagine his divine power according to matthew 24 30 the earth will mourn as they see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory according to mark 5 30 great power had come out of him when he healed according to luke 5 17 the power of the Lord God was present in him 
to perform miracles. According to Romans 1 verse 4, Paul declared Jesus was the Son of God with power. Hebrews 1 3, one of my favorite verses, tells us the Lord upholds all things by the word of his power. According to John eleven forty three, 43, he called a dead man by Lazarus' name. And out came the man who had been stinketh, dead, dead. Beloved, the child of God can never say or experience a power failure. <laughs> it, it just, it cannot happen. You, you might uh, distance yourself from the divine source um, through sin, or, or by failing to use what's been made available to you by the power source. But the power source itself never fails. You're never plugged in and going, there's not enough juice there. It can't. The moment you experience a true saving faith in Jesus Christ, God, verse 3, granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And we walk around like, poor me. If only I could tap into some of that. This word here for granted is a, a compound word in the perfect sense, which just means something gave us in the past, but has continuing results in the future. In other words, God has graciously granted to us permanent, all-sufficient power. These things are not naturally found in us. They have to be granted to us. And Jesus, our Lord, by his divine power, generously, continuously gives them to us. Next, I want you to notice what his divine power has granted to us. What, what's this provision for? Verse 3, for his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. This is just incredible. Um, but by what, what, is, what does he mean here? What, what, what does he mean that we have everything pertaining to these two um, terms? Let, let's consider first, is grant to us everything pertaining to life. Everything related to life we have. Okay? Everything. We have new life in Christ, and everything related to sustaining that life we have. That is why believers are eternally secure. Why? Because in Christ, we have everything necessary to sustain that life. He gives the faith, he keeps the believer, and he empowers the believer to persevere until the end. That's why we believe that in any struggle or in any uh, trial in life, that you have everything that you need. Not that you're not going to go through them, but that you have everything you need because all that you need in life, you have. God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. You have it in fullness. You have it in abundance. You have everything you need pertaining to life. And then he adds in godliness. Everything you need to be godly, you have. This is a beautiful word, eusebia, which means a true reverence or sort of reverence and worship and certainly active obedience. It's uh, piety, to be pious. Everything you need to, to be a reverent, holy, godly person, you have. 
You don't need to be begging for something more. You have every spiritual resource sustain you and, per and perfect that eternal life that is in you and every spiritual resource to manifest that life in godly living. All you need is there. It's never a question of sufficiency. The grace that is so powerful to save is equally powerful to sustain and equally power to manifest itself in our conduct, in our Christian lives. So we looked at a couple of these terms, power, provision, and then a third P here, um, procurement. How do we get this powerful provision? Verse three, through the true knowledge of him, watch out, getting excited back here, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. This is what a statement this is. How do you get it through the true knowledge of him who called us? What does that mean? That you have to know Christ. It's that word again, epigenosis. It means a true, full, intimate knowledge. Epi, it's intensifying it. So it's more than you just know things about him. It's a true knowledge. That's a good translation. A true knowledge they add to that. It's not just knowledge. And that's what he's saying here is that you have to have a true knowledge of Christ. Not a superficial uh, knowledge. Not some kind of surface knowledge or uh, a list of facts about him. Not some kind of shallow acquaintance. You know the story of Jesus. You have to know him. Remember Matthew 7, 21? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, verse 22, but Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? And do we not perform many miracles in your name? And I will confess to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. What was Jesus saying? That he didn't know who they were? No. Of course he knew where they were. We were never in a deep abiding relationship with one another. I never knew you. In fact, our, new our newer translations are, are changing this term to know, um, to be more concise, which is, which is fine, because um, a lot of people actually don't pick up on it anyways. But um, if you have an ESV, um, or an older um, King James, um, even New King James keeps it. Um, in the Old Testament, for example, it says, when Cain knew his wife and she bore a child. So it's describing a deep, intimate knowing in sexual relations. Or in Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, when it says, Joseph knew Mary not until she had given birth to a son. Again, it doesn't mean that Joseph did not know her. It was speaking to the intimate sexual relations of knowing one another in the covenant of marriage of a husband and a wife. And so here in verse 3, when it says, it is through the true knowledge of him, it means it is through a deep and intimate relationship that a person can have with Christ by faith in truly knowing Jesus and experiencing that deep and, and intimate communion when one comes to the true knowledge of Christ, he receives divine 
power which brings into his life every spiritual provision his life could ever need to be sustained and manifest itself in godliness, in godly living. When you were born into the family of God, you were born um, fully sufficient. <laughs> you were not lacking, you were not without. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Yes, we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but all the resources you need are here. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, I read it almost every week. My God will supply all your needs, how? According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There's even more here in this verse. There's some elements to this marvelous true knowledge. First of all, will you please notice that God initiates it? Notice the rest of verse 3. Through the true knowledge of him who called us. Called us. Beloved, you cannot come to a true knowledge of him unless God, what? Calls you. That's the sovereign side of his salvation. How does God call you? How does he do that? Well, first of all, John 16, verse 8 says, the Holy Spirit begins to convict you concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And when God does that, the power of Satan over you is broken. Broken. When you are convicted concerning your sin, righteousness, and judgment, and the Spirit of God is at work, watch out. Then you begin to see the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one way of describing that God is drawing you. The only way you can have a true knowledge of Christ is by the effectual call of the Father. Jesus actually puts it this way in John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. But then there's something else. There's something on our side that I want you to see. That's the sovereign divine side. Look again at verse 3. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. This is really easy to just kind of skip over and took me an extra couple hours to fully study this but it was so worth it our um, true knowledge starts when we are called but but notice that call it's affected towards us by his own glory and excellence you see god calls but that calling becomes effectual as we are drawn by the glory and excellence of christ this is so good we got to chew on it for just a minute here peter's re referring to the revealed majesty of the lord that made him so attractive to us that's why the only way you can have saving faith is to have a true knowledge of jesus christ that's why when we went through john's gospel for example he presents christ and besides all of his words and teaching john presents the miraculous savior in fact the whole first half of the book the first 11 chapters if you remember are focused on those seven sign miracles and all of them pointed every time we saw them we didn't just sit at the miracle and go "Ooh!" they pointed to a reality a spiritual reality in christ the sign you don't stare at the sign you go to where it's pointing to okay 
In fact, at the end of um, John's book, in chapter 20, verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, the one that John put in, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So as the Father draws you, he presents you to this glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. His glory is this uh, word in the Greek, doxa. And whenever doxa is used in Scripture, it always belongs to God. It always belongs to God. So when you're seeing the glory of Christ, you are seeing the deity in Christ. That's why we must always present Christ, because it is through that that the call of God to draw men is affected. You know, it's amazing to me how many people today can assume you can lead someone to Christ without a, pre a clear presentation of him. We're talking about everything else other than Christ. We're talking about the dinosaurs and the this and the that. What? It's fine to be talking about those things later, but when you're presenting the gospel of an unsaved person, we want to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I repeat what Romans 10, 17 says. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the words of Christ. And the first thing you want to hear about him is his glory, that he is God. If he's just another great teacher, well, that's fine, but he's dead. And in our Bible, that would make him a liar. But that's not what happened. Genesis 1.1 doesn't start out saying, well, you know, God is like this, and this is the way that you can do this and that, and this is what... In the beginning, God just states the fact. God created. John 1, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the light was the light of men. And so, yes, people are saved because the Father effectually calls them, and He draws fallen man to Himself. But from our viewpoint, what draws us, what the, what the Father uses His means, is the glory of Christ highlighted in His deity. God, if He was just another teacher, when He, when he went to that cross, He would then died, would have been buried, and would have stayed buried. He did not stay buried. God rose him from the dead. He is God. So what then do we preach to sinners? What do we have to preach to people who don't know the Lord? We have to preach the glory of Jesus Christ. We have to preach Christ and Christ crucified. We have to preach that Jesus is God in human flesh as proven by what he said and what he did. So we bring them to the scriptures. And then... He says at the end of the verse that we are going to be drawn not only by his glory, but also by his own excellence. Arete, which means moral goodness and virtue. Not only his person as God, but his life was virtuous. His, his earthly, physical life of 33 years. When I look Jesus Christ, I see not only God, but I see perfect humanity. When I look at the Gospels, I see a whole display of divine acts and divine words coming through the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
So it's the divine glory of God and the moral excellence of Jesus Christ. His life itself draws men to himself. And beloved, let me just say this. When we present the gospel that's empty of the person and glory of Christ, we're preaching a dead gospel. Just a lifeless, powerless gospel. But that's not the only thing that will draw men to God. It's not promising the people be happy, not promising and all your earthly troubles will disappear. No. What really draws men to Christ is a true knowledge of God. Where the vision of Christ becomes clear. They see that he was God and that he was perfect. That he lived a life that we could never live. And he was willingly laid down his life, his perfect life, on the cross at Calvary. Suffered, bled, toned for our sins. When he died, they took his body off that tree, wrapped it in linen, buried him. Three days later, the stone was rolled away. He was not there for he had risen from the dead. Defeating not only sin, but death. Present that Christ, that glorious Christ, the excellent one who now reigns at the right hand of the Father. Well, that leads us to our final verse. Verse 4, as we see that this isn't just a series of random words that Peter is writing down, but precious and magnificent promises. Our last P, promises. Verse 4. For through these, through what? Through his own glory and excellence. Four attaches to verse 3. Four. Four, through his own glory and, and excellence that we just saw in Christ. His glorious divine nature through his moral perfection because of who he is and what he has done. Through these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Oh, the word precious here is describing all the precious promises that we have in Christ. Everything that we have in Christ. And then he adds on to it the word magnificent, megos. It means valuable, great in size, uh, mega. For through these he has granted to us his precious and, and mega promises. So by the saving gospel, our glorious, majestic, virtuous, righteous Jesus Christ has generously and continually granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. What promises though? Well, Jesus said that he who believes in me shall live the promise of eternal life. He said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. He said, because I live, you too shall live also. Resurrection life. All of his promises. All things present and all things to come. He promised us all blessings in the heavenlies. He promised us grace upon grace. He promised us joy, strength, guidance. He promised us help in time of need. He promised wisdom. He promised us his Holy Spirit. He promised us heaven. He promised us eternal rewards. All of it. All of his promises. He isn't even qualifying it here. Just go through your New Testament and find every promise that he gave. It's yours. It's yours in Christ. Do you have all that you need? Are you fully sufficient? Yeah. Yeah. For his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. All of this he gives in order that, look at verse 4, so that by then you may become partakers of the divine nature. 
boom. <laughs> Whoa, what's he saying? The purpose for his promises, the purpose for his goodness through Christ was so that you could become a partaker of the divine nature. You mean to tell me that the Father drew me through the attractive glory and excellencies of Christ and gave me all these promises and true saving knowledge of his Son so that I could partake of his divine nature? That's right. When you come to receive Jesus Christ, you have received everything you need for life and godliness. You receive all the promises of God in time and in eternity, and you become a partaker of God's nature. Now, I believe there's um, at least one-fold, possibly a two-fold application to what this is speaking to. First of all, um, it's talking on some level the here and now. John 1.12 says, you have become children of God. Romans 8.9 says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If the Spirit dwells within you, you have become a partaker of the divine nature. How about Paul, what he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ is in you. The word partaker is kenosis, and we often translate that word fellowship. It means sharer or partner. We partake of God's life in us. We're, we're partners in that same eternal life. But how can that be? End of verse 4, because having escaped the corruption that is in the world. There is a sense in which our new life in Christ is a new nature, the divine nature, and we have escaped the corruption that had marked us prior to our conversion. That word corruption has the idea of something that's totally rotten, decaying, corrupted, ruined. That's what we were. We were rotten to the core, decaying, and through Christ we've escaped that. Isn't that wonderful? So you have a totally new nature in Christ because it's the life of God that dwells in you. So in that sense, there's some people that take that to mean, I'm God, see? No, that's not what he's saying. Having already escaped the corruption that is in the world on the account of its lusts. The corruption that is in the world is rotten, decaying, sin, driven by lust. That word lust is evil desire. But there's another sense that this certainly could be speaking to. Peter also might have the future in mind. He might be saying, the Lord has saved you and he has dispensed in you all the provisions for life and godliness and granted to you all the promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature in the future, having escaped the corruption that is in the world on the account of lust. That could be what he's also saying. In other words, when you have fully escaped the corruption, then you will become a, a partaker of the divine nature. When your flesh is also redeemed, when you have a glorified body and you are completely made new in Christ. Um, could be speaking to both dimensions here. Um, there's a sense in which we already partake of the divine nature because we have a new heart. God's put a, a new heart in us. That before was dead, it was a stone, rock. 
So there's a sense in which we will yet partake of the divine nature in the sense of like that, that glorified body. So that's true. And in that day, the Bible says, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Nevertheless, beloved, we are partakers, certainly in the extent of the verses I've read to you today, of the divine nature as Christ lives in us. He has put his seal upon us, his Holy Spirit, until the day of redemption. And so we have escaped the spiritual corruption of our fallenness, and someday we'll escape the, the physical corruption of, of what remains of our, our fallen flesh. And that may be Peter's main point here. What a fascinating portion of Scripture. Um, let your hearts yearn for Christ, as mine did through this. Is there sufficiency in your salvation? The Bible testifies, oh yeah, there is. Oh yeah. Because God is its source. He is its power. Our gives us, God gives us more grace, more peace, and is able to do exceedingly, abundantly more than we ask or think according to the power at work within us. More than we could possibly ever understand. If you are in need of prayers this morning, we'd be happy to pray with you. And at this time, I'll invite you to please stand as we praise the Lord. Amazing grace, my chains are gone.